If you have your Bibles, open them up to the book of Luke. If you need a Bible still, uh, raise your hand and usher will kind of get one to you at some point. Um, so to open this morning, I want to ask you guys a question. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been completely helpless? Um, where without intervention, you were sunk, you were done, uh, whether it's a, been in a, a flat tire and you didn't have a jack in your car, whatever the case is. Uh, have you, how many of you guys have been in a situation like that? Okay, ushers, go give them Bibles. Just kidding. I realized I was kind of productive to have them raise their hand, but you get what I'm saying. So, uh, well, this happened to me. Uh, and if you have heard this story, I apologize. My wife begged me not to share it, but I'm going to anyways. She says, you share the same stories all the time. That's her Mother's Day voice, by the way. Um, so I'm going to just share the story, so bear with me if you've heard it. So it was back in the summer of 2008. I had just become youth pastor here at the church, and I was leading my first uh, trip. And, and so I, I took a bunch of students to Oceanside Pier, and we went surfing, or they went surfing, I went floating. Um, I was a lot, uh, lot out, big... It was a lot heavier then. I was 285 pounds then. So I wasn't necessarily a surfer bod it, per se, you know. Um, but I, had, I couldn't let my students know how uncoordinated I was and how out of shape I was. So, of course, I go out where all the surfers are at on my boogie board. Because apparently I'm going to show these surfers how it's done, at like, looking like a, whale, a walrus on a boogie board. So anyways, I'm out there. I'm not catching any waves. Super shocker. All my students are catching waves in. I'm like, dang it. Like, so I realize the waves are closer to the shore. So I start paddling in and paddling in. And I must have looked like a dead fish flopping around um, like shark bait, right? And I realized that I'm caught in a rip current and there's nothing I can do. I am helpless at this point. Absolutely helpless. Um, and apparently it looked like it because out of the water comes this blonde hair, blue eyes, glistening David Hasselhoff Jr., 15-year-old kid. And he's like, hey, I'm here to rescue you. I noticed you're in a rip current. I said, no, I'm good, actually. This is this routine thing I do where I act like I'm drowning, but I'm really not. It's, it's, just, it's a whole thing. And he's like, no, you're, you're drowning. And I'm like, all right, you got me. You got me. So... Um, I'll, He's like, well, here, grab onto this. And he throws me his little, the thing that they run on the beach with in slow motion. You know what I'm talking about? What are the, the buoy, whatever? Yeah, those things. Yeah. Um, and so he pulls me into shore. Super embarrassing, right? What happens you get on shore is thousands of people rush around you like you had just got bitten by a shark or something awful happened. No, just this big guy couldn't swim, got caught in a rip curtain, had a 15-year-old boy rescue me. Um, so I had, I had a choice to make, really. Um, I, I had a choice to make. I could either die in my pride and tell the kid, no, you, you know, I'm twice your age. Uh, you're, I could squash you in a second if I wanted to. Like, I can rescue myself, which I couldn't. Or I could submit myself, humble myself, and allow this kid to rescue me. So I was, I was helpless. Well, today we're going to look at two different passages in, in God's word where this was basically the scenario. We're going to look at a centurion and his servant, um, who was desperately ill and God came in and rescued, spoiler alert, Jesus wins. He comes in and he rescues him. And then we're going to look at the next story where we, we meet this widow who is at her son's funeral and uh, God comes in and, and raises this guy to life. And so um, as, as we look at God's word now, uh, Luke chapter seven, I, I want you to do this, not just hear me read it, but, but follow along in your word and place yourself in the story here. So we're going to look at an incredible, credible stories of humility, faith, and Jesus' response to that. Uh, Luke 
chapter seven, starting in verse one. It says, now when he concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people that he entered Capernaum and a certain centurion's servant who was dear to him was sick and ready to die. So centurion was a Roman soldier, right? And he had a servant and this servant apparently was dear to him, which is not normal, okay? So the centurion has a sick servant and verse three says, so when he heard, the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews uh, to him pleading, that word pleading is beg, to beg with him to come and to heal his servant. And when he came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly saying uh, that the one for whom he should do this was deserving. So look, this centurion, he's, he's, he's deserving of this. Please, please, please heal his servant. Uh, and this is what qualifies why he's deserving in the Jewish elders' minds. It says, for, for he loves our nation, even built us a synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he, had, when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself for I am unworthy that you should come under or should enter under the roof. Therefore, I did not even think myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to the one, go, and he goes and come and he comes. Um, and then verse nine, it says, and when Jesus heard these things, he marveled, Jesus marveled. And he said this, I say to you, I have not seen such great faith or found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned to the house and found the servant well who had been sick. Just an incredible story of, like I said, humility on the, on the, ha- on the behalf of the centurion um, and great faith on behalf of the centurion. And the centurion's servant, the soldier's servant did nothing did absolutely nothing, and yet he was miraculously and divinely healed. Just, just in such an incredible story. And so uh, I want you guys to do me a favor. As we're reading this scripture here, I want you to place yourself in the shoe of the centurion's servant, this guy who is helpless. If you look at Matthew's gospel of this account, it says in Matthew's gospel that the guy was paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. So I don't know about you. Um, I have yet to be, uh, or, or I, I haven't been in a place where I have been dreadfully tormented, but maybe you have. And so if, if you have, you can imagine and know what, what this guy is going through. He's literally on his deathbed. He's not just sick, but he's dreadfully tormented and he's paralyzed. And so we in this story are just like the centurion's servant in our sin, we are dreadfully tormented. In fact, Paul, he has this struggle in the book of Romans where he says like, I want to do the right thing. And yet I always mess up and do the wrong thing. And the wrong things that I don't want to do, those are the things that I end up doing. Like, oh, wretched man that I am, who can save me from this body of death? But then his response is, but God who is rich in mercy and so forth, he's come to rescue. And this is basically the gospel. These two stories are the gospel. Here, this centurion servant is sick on his deathbed, completely helpless to do anything of himself, or he can't fix himself. He can't just get up. He can't take enough vitamin C. He can't, you know, take enough silver or essential oils or all that weird stuff. None of that's going to work for this guy, right? Uh, What's going to work is divine intervention and divine intervention alone. So put yourself in their shoes. And also let's put ourselves in the shoes of the centurion. So what was the centurion saying? What was his great claim to fame? He was a bad dude in the eyes of, of Jews. 
Centurions were Roman soldiers. You gotta remember the Jewish people were being oppressed by the Romans when they came in, right? And so this guy was a bad dude, but he had built a name for himself. He had built a reputation for himself. And, and the, God's word declares that he was a godly man. And we know this for a couple of reasons. One, he, he, his humility, he says, Lord, I can't, right? I, I, I can't even have you come to my house. I'm not even worthy that you would come under my roof. Lord, just say the word and I know it will, you, you'll heal, right? So we know that he was godly in his humility and we know that Jesus marveled and pointed out his great faith. So we know he was, he was godly in the way that he had faith. And then another one that we look at in God's word is that what, what did the Jewish elders say? This guy is so worthy. This guy can do it. Like he's built a synagogue. If anyone's deserving that you would raise a, a dead person, it would be this guy. He has done so many things for us. He's not your typical Roman soldier that would uh, oppress us or beat us or take advantage of us. This guy loves you, Lord. This guy loves Yeshua. And so as we look at God's word, a couple of things jump out to me. The first thing is in verse six, the, the Roman soldier, he says this, then Jesus went to him and when, and when he, Jesus, was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him and said, Lord, don't trouble yourself. I'm not worthy that you should enter under my roof. So here's a guy who had a lot of power. He had a hundred Roman soldiers un, under him, right? So he was a man in authority, he was used to telling people what to do. He was used to saying, hey, go get that person, bring him here, or go get that person, bring him there. Um, he, for all intents and purposes, was the man. And yet we see this, this, this display of great humility. And what does he say? He calls Jesus Lord. So there's a difference between being Lord. Um, well, let's put it this way. So in my life, I can speak from experience. I can't speak on your behalf, but I can speak on my behalf. And chances are uh, a lot of you are, are like me, where you grew up knowing Jesus, right? And would call him Lord, but your life didn't reflect Jesus being Lord of your life. Your life reflected you being saved by God's grace, but not necessarily letting your life be ruled and reigned by Jesus himself as Lord, and so as you look at the centurion here, he recognizes not Jesus as, as Messiah, but as Jesus as Lord, meaning every step of this centurion's life was marked by God, by Yeshua, by the Redeemer. I think that's just incredible because it's one thing to call God our Savior. It's another thing to call him Lord. And if you've, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that the struggle is real to want to control your own life. How many of you guys are like me and want to control things? And the rest of you are just lying about it at church, on Mother's Day at church, the worst kind. No, so if you're like me and you're a sinner, um, you, you want to control things. And that's not a bad trait in and of itself, but what does God want? What does God not want? What does he demand from us? 100% control, right? Jesus talked about it in Revelation, right? He's talking about the lukewarm church. He's like, I don't want you guys lukewarm. I'd rather have you be on fire for me or freezing cold because I could do something with you. But because you're in the middle, because you, you, I'm your savior, but I'm not your Lord, I'm gonna vomit you out of my mouth. And Jesus is like, I don't want that. I want you to be, I wanna be Lord of all. And so the centurion recognizes Jesus as Lord and, uh, and, and God has, um, or the centurion just shows this incredible, incredible, incredible um, amount of humility here. 
Like being a guy in charge and used to being the man and being able to tell people what to do um, and then to say, Jesus, no, you can't even come to my house. I'm not even worthy. I think of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter six when, when here he has his encounter with God and you know, the, the story goes that Jesus' Uh, the robe of the train of his robe filled the temple, right? And there's these cherubim and they, they come and they, they touch Isaiah's lips. And he's like, dude, I am undone. I'm not even worthy to be in your presence right now. So this is, this is the kind of reverence that the centurion servant or the centurion soldier rather is, is showing towards Jesus, right? So humility is just like, this guy is just marked by humility. You know, what's really funny is that um, God has a funny way of, letting me live humility out the week I'm going to be preaching on it, which is the worst, um, if I can be honest with you, right? So I got the awesome opportunity Sarah and I did on Friday night to go, or Friday afternoon, to go down to Del Mar, uh, the polo fields there, Alex Ruiz and the Ruiz family, and Shirley and Mike and Nico and Dominic and Susie, or Nico wasn't there, he's in Maryland, but we FaceTimed him. Um, but, but Alex was going to get presented his prosthetic leg by his favorite football player of all time, Drew Brees, right? It was a total surprise for Alex. It was awesome. I told, she, when Shirley told me about it, I was like, please let me tag along. Please let me tag. She's like, of course you can come. And so we went down there and, and, uh, and, and so when we show up, one of Alex's friends, his mom was there, you know? And so I met her and she gave this like perplexed look on her face. Like when she like met me, I'm like, do I have something like on my face or something, you know? And I was like, oh, I'm Kyle, whatever. And then, so about an hour later, when we're all kind of hanging out, waiting for this presentation, she comes up to me. She's like, Kyle, you know, I've got to tell you, when I first met you, I thought you were a famous football player. I thought you were like the guy we're here to see. And I was like, yeah, I get that a lot. You know, I, you're not the first one today even, you know? And so, um, Humility, right? This week, humility. And so I'm like on cloud nine, um, just thinking, yeah, I do look like a football player, don't I? <laughs> I'm no longer the walrus on the, uh, the old boogie board getting rescued. <laughs> I'll be doing the rescuing from here on out. So anyways, right, that goes by. And then uh, we're in Del Mar. And afterwards, the ceremony was awesome. It was such a cool thing. Alex was super pumped. And so we, we go to this, this bougie restaurant called Burgantines or something. It's like on the water, like super fancy in Del Mar. I don't know if you've ever been there or not, but we, we go there and we are, Sarah and I are way out of our league. Or I'm out of my league at least. I roll up in my 1996 uh, Honda Accord station wagon um, and we find out it's valet parking only. I'm just like, hmm. And I was like, oh yeah, you can valley park. This is my son's. I got an old son. He's, we're, it's mine, right? So we, we, we pay the $6 to have him park and we go and eat and we come out, right? And, uh, and so God's teaching me humility there, even through the, the stupid car. And I could care less. I love my car. It's only got 42,000 miles on it. So anyways, um, so we're there, right? And we come out and then there comes this like, uh, this couple, like the howls from, um, uh, what's that? Help me. Gilligan's Island, right? So like the howls come out, right? And she hands me her ticket and was like, hey, can you go get my car? <laughs> so God has a funny way of, of humbling you when you think you are an NFL player and realize that you drive a 96 Honda Accord station wagon. So anyways, um, as... <laughs> I love you, Johnny. You're the man. Um, so anyways, the centurion here just showed great humility, being, having anything he wanted at his fingertips, and yet he cho- chose to humble himself. And he says, look, I too, I'm a man of authority, and I recognize where true authority comes from, and that's you, Jesus. 
that you say this and it will be done. And he says, just say the word, Jesus, and my servant will be healed. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. Well, you notice here, what, what happens? What happens? Jesus doesn't say a word and yet the servant is still healed. Incredible to me. Jesus healed based off of this guy's faith and this guy's humility. Had nothing to do with this guy at all. Had everything to do with Jesus. And so you and I are like that guy on the boogie board. You and I are like the centurion's servant, helpless to do anything good. We cannot take enough medication. We cannot walk enough old ladies across the street. We cannot get enough cats down from the tree and throw them away. There's nothing we can do that's going to possibly get us out of the trouble that we are in, in and of ourselves, in our sin. But God shows up in our lives. And he showed up in my life and I'm grateful that I'm no longer who I used to be, that God has been transforming me and changing me day in and day out. The centurion knew that if Jesus knew that Jesus could heal him, he said, just say the word and I know, I know he will be healed. Let me ask you this. Do we have that same kind of faith? Do we have the same kind of faith that the centurion said? They said, God, we know, we know that you are capable of doing this. We know that you will do this. When the centurion asked, he, he said he begged right? He begged that his servant would be healed. This comes from a posture of reverence and understanding and pleading and knowing exactly who God is and that God could save him. Do we have the kind of faith that the centurion had? Or do we have the kind of faith that when we pray for something, we're not very earnest about it. And we're actually praying half-heartedly, expecting God to care about something we care less about. I think sometimes when we get in those desperate situations, we're on our knees before God and we're saying, God, have mercy. I need you. I need you. I need you. But then when there's conveniences and stuff like that, that we want in our life, we say, God, it would be really cool if you could throw me a bone here. So do we have the kind of faith that begs earnestly and fervently, or do we pray half-heartedly expecting God to care about something that we care little about? So the Bible says in James, talking about prayer and how we are to pray, he says this, uh, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So what does it mean to be fervent? What, what does that word fervent mean? I'll, I'll put it up here on the screen. It says this, having or displaying a passionate intensity. Have you guys ever had passionate intensity about something where you just, like you're, you're on your knees before God and you're praying and you're praying and you're praying. This is how God wants us to come to him. Not only in dire straits, but in everything that we do. So effective prayer is fervent. So when we go to God, we must go to him fervently, expecting God to show up. And we're not going to God and we're not being fervent because we're gonna change God's mind somehow. Like if I just pray hard enough, then God will change his mind and he'll conform his will to my will. But no, as we pray, what we're doing is we're allowing God to change our mind because we're gaining the heart and the mind of Jesus himself. And Jesus says, you pray anything in my name, it'll be done. That's not name it, claim it. That's not like, oh, if, 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 you, if you just believe enough and you just have enough hope and you just, you just have enough prayer, then, then you'll be healed of all your infirmities. Well, I'm sorry, that's not the case all the time. That does happen. Jesus heals with a word. 
But the idea here is that as we are fervent for God and we are constantly um, pressing into him, that God will begin to change our heart and our mind and we will begin to have God's heart and God's mind towards things. And so as we pray, God's changing us as much as he's changing the situation around us. Do we pray for our marriages? Do we pray for our relationships with our parents? Do we pray for our relationships with our, say our, our, there's high school and junior high students here. Maybe do we pray for your friends. Do we pray for um, our grandparents? Do we pray for our spouses with fervency, desperately asking God to show up? Because God's a good father and he will answer those prayers if we would just align our hearts to his. So as we look at this story here, Jesus, he, he, he responds here in verse nine. So when Jesus heard the passion that this Roman centurion had, the faith that this guy had, the humility that this guy was overtaken by, when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you that I have not found such great faith not even in Israel. And those who were sent returned to the house and found the servant who was sick or who had been sick well. Unbelievable. The centurion said, if you would just say the word, he would be healed. Jesus says, not a word, goes back and the guy is healed. Just an incredible, incredible story of God's faithfulness and God's love for us. And Jesus marvels at a desperate man at the end of his rope who had nothing to do with anything. Jesus marvels at this guy's faith. Not because he was a centurion, not because he was a good leader, but because he was a good follower of Jesus. And he showed humility and he said, you know what? That's my son. That's my son. So this brings us to the second section here, the second story. Without divine intervention, their ship would be sunk and it's a really tragic ending if Jesus didn't show up. So starting in verse 11, um, Jesus meets this widow and meets this dead guy and comes across this, this funeral procession. And starting in verse 11, it says this, now it happened the day after that he went into the city that was called Nain and many of his disciples went with him and, and a large crowd. And when they came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she, uh, and she was a widow, and a large crowd from the city was with her. Then the Lord said to her, uh, <clears throat> then, then the, um, excuse me, this is super important. Listen, verse 13. Then the Lord saw her, and he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him uh, stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak and he presented him to his mother. Then, uh, then fear came upon all and they glorified God saying a great prophet has risen up among us. And the report about him went throughout all Judea and all the surrounding area or all the surrounding regions. So here we see Jesus come upon this, this uh, funeral procession, right? So as, as we soak in the story, we got to put ourselves in a couple of people's shoes. I want you to put yourself in the, the widow's shoe. Jesus rolls up to this scene. There's flutes playing. Uh, there's hired mourners. There is family members all mourning and crying and wailing over the death of this man who was dead in the coffin and they were carrying him out of the city. And Jesus shows up. And so as we look at that, 
You know, spiritually and metaphorically speaking, each and every one of us, like the centurion's servant, are, are in that coffin without Jesus' rescue. In and of our sins, or in and of ourselves because of our sins and how we sinned against God, we are, spirit, we are spiritually in coffins. So may put yourself in that situation. Maybe you have a, a marriage right now or a relationship right now that feels like it's in a coffin, that it's dead without divine intervention, it's going to end tomorrow. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a, a parent. Maybe it's a mother. Whatever the case is, I want you to put yourself in that coffin. It's a scary place to be. Or maybe you're like the widow. She had already lost her, her husband at some point in life. It's like, how can things get much worse? Well, and now she loses her son. And how the, the culture worked back then is if you, you had kids, they would take care of you in your old age, right? That was her only means of being able to be provided for. She couldn't remarry. She couldn't have kids. She was past the age of all that. Nobody wanted her. You know, in the Jewish society, she would have been tainted goods, Right? So here she is, her her only son, you know, going to be able to to take care of her and rescue her. And what happens? Her son's dead. So this woman is lost. She is hopeless. She is the centurion servants like him. She's like her son for all intents and purposes in the coffin and without divine intervention, lost and done with forever. A tragic scene. And pretty soon, you know what would happen? Pretty soon, the mourners are going to go home. The phone calls are going to stop. The flowers will, be, will stop showing up at your door. The text messages, the emails, the cards, so forth, all that is going to dissipate. And this poor woman's going to be left all alone. Everyone's going to forget about her. In the moment, we rally, right? We rally around. But then what happens in the weeks and the months following? This lady is depressed, no doubt. She's hurting, to say the least. And yet we see Jesus here. Jesus shows up in the midst of tragedy. Verse 13 says this, and when he, the Lord, saw her, he had compassion on her and he said to her, do not weep. Could you imagine having some guy saying, don't cry, It'll be okay, like kind of a pat on the head. Like, don't cry. Wouldn't that anger you? Have you ever been in a situation where you've lost someone? It's like, oh, it's going to be fine. Like, we're going to pull through this. It's like, yeah, right. We're not going to pull through this. There's nothing I can do that's not going to get better, right? My papa told me something once. It always stuck with me. He said, this is after his wife, my grandma passed away. He said, you know, I was going to this grief group and, and what I've learned at the grief group is that you, it doesn't get easier God just by his grace helps you to get stronger, you know? And so for anyone out there that's maybe lost a mother or lost a a child or or has experienced loss, let me just tell you, it doesn't get easier, but by God's grace, you get stronger. And I want that to encourage you to think that there's something wrong with you if you haven't gotten over it yet. No, it's a process and and, and God sees you and he's gonna have compassion on you and uh, you will get through it but that doesn't mean it's not gonna hurt. It's not gonna mean it's not gonna be really bad. Um, But God is faithful. He sees you and he has compassion on you. So Jesus shows up and he says, don't weep. And uh, there's two things I want you guys to notice. When God shows up, I'll put them up on the screen. The first one I wanna talk to you about is that God sees you. 
When Jesus showed up, what did he do? God saw. Jesus saw. I don't know. Maybe you feel like God doesn't see you. Maybe that you're in the middle of this coffin right now and you're like, God, where are you? Are you going to resurrect me? I feel like I've been dying a thousand deaths. This depression, this anxiety, this hurt, this pain, this relationship, this heart has been torn to pieces. God, where are you? Let me tell you this, that God sees you. Even when you don't think he sees you, he sees you. And not only does he see you, but point number two is that he has compassion on you. And compassion looks differently than we think it does. Compassion in our minds, at least my mind sometimes, means everything is just going to get better. That's not compassion. Compassion is that Jesus sees us in our current situation, but ultimately he's going to resurrect those who believe and give their life to Jesus in the last day. And Jesus, the ultimate sign of compassion is that when God sent Jesus to die so that we might live. That's compassion. Ultimately, every single one of us are going to live for eternity. Every single one of us in this room is going to live for eternity. It's just a matter of where. And that choice is yours. That choice was mine. And so Jesus sees and Jesus has compassion. A couple of verses I want to highlight. I actually want to highlight Psalms 86, verse 15, speaking of God's compassion. It says this, but you, O Lord, are a God full of compassion and gracious and long-suffering and abundant in mercy and truth. And Ephesians 2, four through five says this about God's compassion, how he loves us. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love, which he had loved us, even when we were dead in that coffin, relationally, spiritually, physically, when we were in that coffin, We were dead in our trespasses, but he made us alive together with Christ. It's by grace we have been saved. You notice what happens here in this story? Jesus shows up, he sees them, he has compassion on them, and and he resuscitates this guy back to life. The guy in the coffin, the relationship in the coffin, the marriage in the coffin, the person in the coffin, your life, your sin, us, in that coffin, we can do absolutely nothing to save ourselves. Just like that man could do nothing to save himself. Just like the centurion could do nothing to save his servant, except to submit and say, God, I can't, but you can. God, I can't, but you can. This man did nothing to earn his second chance. He couldn't walk enough old ladies and the guy was dead. He couldn't do anything. But there was nothing he could do to earn this second chance. And yet God showed up. God had compassion. God rescued. God redeemed. God resuscitated this guy. And here's the difference. There's a difference between resuscitation, that's why I'm using this word, and not resurrect. Because this guy was resuscitated back to life just to have to die again. What a bust, right? Dang it. But ultimately, God resurrected us and resurrected him to new life. Those that would put their faith and their hope and their trust in Jesus, submit to him, recognize that we're sinners, that God came to save sinners, we will be resurrected to new life in Christ and we will spend eternity in heaven one day. Amen. So, (coughs) excuse me. 
So as we look at this story and it comes to a close, I want to leave you with Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And here's the gospel summarized. Here are these two stories summarized. Here's our part of what we did to save ourselves. And here's what God's part we did to save ourselves. It says this, you were dead. That's us. That's you. That's me. Because of your sins, my sins. This is our part in the gospel. Isn't it great? We were dead because of our sins and because of our sinful nature was not yet cut away. But here's what happened. Here's where God saw and here's where God had the compassion. Then God, who made you and me alive in Christ, for he gave us, or he forgave us all our sins and he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Listen, whether you're the centurion, whether you're the centurion's servant, whether you're the dead guy in the coffin, or whether you're the widow, all three end up, or all four end up the exact same way. Helpless outside of a relationship with Jesus. Helpless outside of submitting their hearts and their lives to the lordship of Jesus. But like these stories, Jesus sees and Jesus has compassion. And Jesus didn't see it fit to leave us in our sin and in that coffin. But he spoke a word of healing into that coffin and he rose up. And he touched that coffin. And maybe you need a fresh touch from the Lord this morning. Maybe your relationship with your spouse is is dead. Maybe your relationship with your family members are dead. Maybe it's caused by you. Maybe it's caused by another. Regardless, it's dead. And in and of yourself, you are helpless and powerless to do anything about it but God. He came to resuscitate, he came to resurrect, and he came to redeem. And he offers all three of those things.